0: This morning, I invite you to draw your swords and turn to Psalm 73. Today, we continue our Summer of Psalms sermon series. And once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace They clothe themselves with violence. From their calloused hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery slippery ground. You've cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you'll despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God you may be seated. What do you do when the facts of life and the facts of faith don't measure up? What do you do when your spiritual experiences and your spiritual insight seems to collide? For example, We've been taught, and most of us want to believe, that God is good to the good guys and he punishes the villains. But what happens when you look around your world and it seems as if the wicked are winning and the righteous are suffering at the hand of God? What do you do when the facts of life and the facts of faith don't measure up? Maybe you've had moments of doubt, despair, depression in your life. Maybe it's been bone crushing. Maybe there have been times when you have doubted the goodness of God's character. You've questioned the truthfulness of God's word. Maybe there's been a moment when you've wondered if God was even aware of all the sordid affairs of the world. I don't know if you've had that experience. But the author of this psalm certainly had this experience. He starts with a strong statement of faith. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But he quickly follows that in verse 2 with uh, a statement of of bone-crushing doubt and despair. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. I was about ready to throw in the towel, walk away, turn away from God. Why? Because the facts of life and the facts of faith just did not measure up. His spiritual experiences and his spiritual insight seemed to collide. These words are not spoken by some pagan. They're not spoken by even a nominal believer on the fringe of orthodoxy. No, these words are penned by the man named Asaph. Asaph is neither a pagan nor is he a nominal believer. Asaph was the worship leader in Israel. He was the Levite chosen by David to lead the nation in worship. He was the first one at the podium to welcome the worshipers. He was the George Beverly Shea of his day. He was the Bill Gaither, Michael W. Smith, Chris Tomlin of his time. He was the one that everybody looked up to. Everybody wanted to emulate. Everybody respected. This is Asaph. And in a moment of transparency, Asaph offers this psalm, and he speaks this bone-crushing doubt. He gives the Sunday school answer at the beginning. It's a statement that is deep in theology. It's accurate in its biblical interpretation. Surely God is good to Israel. Israel is defined as those who are pure in heart. You'll recall what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Surely God is good to his people. Surely a good God is good to good people. But Asaph was looking around and good things were happening to bad people and bad things were happening to good people. And what he had been told and taught is not something that was being played out for him to see. So the facts of life and the facts of faith, they did not measure up. They seemed to collide. They did not coincide one with the other. So because of that, he says, I nearly lost my foothold. My feet had nearly slipped. I nearly fell head over heels into the ravine of spiritual oblivion. I nearly just threw in the towel and walked away. I almost quit on God. You ever had an Asaph moment? You ask yourself, how could somebody find himself in this plight? Well, he gives an answer in verse three, because I envied the arrogant. He said, I looked around at the wicked and they were getting away scot-free. They have no struggles. Their bodies are strong. They don't get old and weak. They don't die. They don't get cancer. Their spouses don't die of brain tumors. Their children don't get diseases. They're not deformed. These are individuals who have families that are beautiful. The wicked, they're individuals who always land the good job. They live in the large house. They drive the fanciest of chariots. They always get the lucrative promotions at work. They're the guys and gals that get the athletic scholarships. They're the ones that get the full ride. They're the ones that are respected in our culture. They get away with murder. And nobody is there to reprimand them, correct them, or corral them. They say whatever they want to say. They do whatever they want to do. And no one ever puts them in their place. With calloused hearts, they do evil upon evil. In fact, their evil knows no limits. Pride is their necklace. They are clothed in arrogance and nobody dares stand up to them. They get away with anything. They even mock God. They scoff at him. They wag their finger in his face. Now, Asaph had had some conversations with these wicked reprobates. He had engaged them in conversation. He had asked them, "Uh, Don't you care? about what you're doing? Don't you know that God will one day get even with you and get back at you? Don't you know that payday comes someday? And they responded, how can God know? Does the most high have knowledge? If your God is so good, and if he knows the evil that I'm doing, the wicked said, then why is it that he's not stepping in and doing something about it? Why is it that he's allowing me to go scot-free? Why is it that he's allowing me to do whatever I want to do? And your good, gracious, sovereign God is not stepping in and doing anything about it. He's not stopping me. Does God know? Does your God have knowledge? The wicked said, I don't even think your God knows. And if he does know, I don't think he cares all that much. This is really bad theology, but this is the dribble that they were communicating and they had throngs of people that followed them and they drank up this nonsense like waters of abundance and people followed the wicked. They, they followed these people who were, uh, uh had no regard for God. And even Asaph was beginning to believe the bad theology. Maybe God doesn't know. Maybe God doesn't care. Because surely if he knew, he would step in and do something. Surely he would not allow them to persist in this evil arrogance. Surely if if, if God was the sovereign, loving, good God of the universe, he would step in and do something. Because the wicked are not supposed to win, and the righteous are not supposed to suffer. But clearly that's the way it looks. If Asaph was living in our day and time, he would ask the question, How can God know? Because if he did know, then why would he allow a million abortions every year? And why would he keep on allowing a million executions of those abortions every year? If God knows, and if he knows right from wrong, then why is it that God permits and allows drug dealers to live like kings? If God knows, if God cares, why is it that He allows our culture and our world to redefine marriage? If God was real, why wouldn't he step in and correct it? Why wouldn't he just zap a few people? Why wouldn't he just do something? If God was so knowledgeable and if he was so caring, why in the world does he allow the persistence of that which was once right now to be called wrong and that which was once wrong now to be called right? Why does he permit immorality to flood the gutters of our society? Why in the world does God allow this to continue on and on and on? What do you do when the facts of life and the facts of faith don't measure up? This is the conclusion that Asaph comes to. The wicked always carefree, always increasing in wealth. They don't have a care in the world. They don't have a worry in the world. And their bank account always gets bigger, not smaller. Bad things don't happen to them. Only good things happen to them. And a sure sign of God's blessing is monetary increase. And their bank accounts always increase. Always increasing in wealth. And here's the conclusion for himself. In vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. They get away scot free. They have a careless lifestyle and their wealth increases, but it's been vain for me to try to do the right thing the right way. Empty of meaning, void, pointless, useless, in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain. Have I tried to wash my hands of innocence? Remember how he described God's people? God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He comes to the conclusion that is all vain and rubbish. It is ridiculous for me to be pure in heart because God does not know, nor does God care. And God is asleep at the wheel. And he doesn't know anything that's going on in our world. Why? Because it's very clear that the wicked are winning. So he comes to the conclusion that all day long I've been plagued. All day long, I have been assaulted by the Holy One. He has permitted it. He has promoted it. All day long, I have been plagued. Now, you may be seated there listening to the words of Asaph and hearing the description that I just gave you, and you may sit there and think to yourself, now, Asaph, you're not being objective about this. In fact, you're not even being realistic about this. Because clearly, let's just have a touch of reality. There are times that wicked people get cancer. There are times that those who don't love the Lord, they lose their jobs too. There are times when their children get diseases. There are times when uh, they don't live in the big house and drive the fancy chariot. There are times when they struggle with the same struggles that you and I have. There are times that God steps in and seems to deliver some retribution to them. There are times when that happens. Asaph, you're not being objective. And if that's your conclusion, you're exactly right. Asaph's not being objective, and he's not being realistic. But poetry is not objective, and neither is life. One of the common threads of life and poetry is this perception is reality how a person perceives life, that's reality to them. You've been in those conversations when somebody is, is just kind of ranting and going off like Asaph's going off and you try to reason with them and say, oh, but Asaph, it's really not that bad. You ought not think that way. Oh, Asaph, you shouldn't feel that way. Oh, Asaph, let me give you evidence A, B, C, and D and it will clearly convince you that it's not as bad as you think it is. And if you have those conversations, either you or that other person eventually throws up their hands and walks away in despair. Because it's very hard to rationalize with somebody who's not really being objective. He's not really being realistic. It's counterintuitive to try to be objective with someone who's not being objective. And Asaph is just being real because perception is reality. This is one of the reasons why we love the Psalms. This is one of the reasons why we're drawn to them because they're raw emotion. What Asaph feels—that must be real—and so that's how he presents it. He presents it that the wicked are getting away scot-free. They have no carries. They, they have no cares. They have no struggles. They have no sickness. They have no diseases. They have bigger bank accounts, and they have a life of carefree. But as for me, it's all vain, empty, and pointless for me to pursue God, because God doesn't know and God doesn't care. Asaph is not angry at the wicked. Asaph is angry at God because God's not acting the way Asaph wants God to act. You ever had an Asaph moment? You ever ever had a moment when God doesn't act the way you think he ought to act? Well, if I was king for a day, this is what I would do. I would fix that problem. I would correct that issue. I would right that wrong. If I was king for a day, God, God, if you want my opinion, I'll give it to you. And even if you don't want my opinion, I'll still give it to you anyway. Because if I were king for a day, this is what I would do. We get frustrated at God when God doesn't act the way we expect him to act, hope him to act, want him to act, believe him to act. We get frustrated when the facts of life and the facts of faith don't measure up. This is Asaph. Bone crushing, despair and doubt. He questions the truthfulness of God. He, he wonders if God is even awake or aware of what's going on. Because it looks like, it looks like, God, your people are struggling. And it looks like people who have no regard for you, they're living a life of carefree ease. If the psalm ended at verse 15, it'd be a rather depressing psalm. And the point of the psalm, if it ended in verse 15, would be something like this. A a disgruntled believer frustrated with the discrepancies of life. That would be the description of the first 15 verses. It's a disgruntled believer that's frustrated with the discrepancies of life. It doesn't make sense. God, you're not acting the way I think you need to act. But everything in the psalm hinges on verses 16 and 17. I tried to understand all this, but it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. You've put them on a slippery slope. Surely they will come to ruin quickly, decisively quickly they will come and be destroyed for God you despise the wicked as much as I despise the wicked they're like a a bad dream to you they're like a fantasy that when one wakes up he just quickly dismisses it so Lord there's going to come a day when you will dismiss the wicked Oh, God, when I was grieving and when I was embittered, I was arrogant, I was ignorant. I acted like a brute beast in front of you. Oh, Lord, please forgive me for all the things I said and the things that I thought, the things that I felt, the things that I did. Oh, Lord, I was nothing more than just a brute beast before you. Okay, either Asaph had an amazing transformation or he is schizophrenic. It's one of one of the two, because for the first half of the psalm, it is like my feet have almost slipped. God, you're not fair. Uh, you're giving good blessings to bad people, and you're giving bad things to good people. And the wicked are advancing their cause, and the righteous, oh, it's in vain that we even pursue you. And then something happens, and everything changes. No longer are my feet about to slip, but you're going to put them on a slippery slope. Not am I going to be ruined, but they are going to be ruined. And he gets to the point where he says, Lord, please forgive me because when I was grieving and when I was bitter and when I was frustrated, I was nothing more than a brute beast before you. I was saying things that I really ought not have even said to begin with. And Lord, please be gracious to me. What changed? What's the key of the transformation in Asaph's life? He says, verses 16 and 17, once again, I tried to understand all this, but it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. What does that phrase mean? Until I enter the sanctuary of God. At the very least, it must mean this. And you can make this note. You can jot it down. I'll give you time to get out a pen and piece of paper. What does it mean when it says, until I enter the sanctuary of God, it means this. Asaph went to church. Don't miss this. Asaph went to church. Friend, there is something powerful and there is something profound about when God's people go to God's house on God's day. There is something supernatural that takes place. There is something that even is beyond words because there's something about going to church. It changes us. It changes our perspective. It strengthens our resolve. It gives us deeper insight. It corrects our stinking thinking. It gives us a greater appreciation for God, a deeper, uh, uh, more uh, greater affection towards one another. It changes things when we simply go to church. I know you can worship God anywhere at any time. I'm well aware of that. I know. You can worship God on the golf course. You can worship God at the ballpark. You can worship God in the mall. You can worship God at the lake. I believe all that. I know all that. But God has consistently chosen to speak to his people through corporate worship. There's something about corporate worship. There's something about coming to church. There's something about God's people getting together. And this is true, whether it's in Asaph's day or, or our day, it is true there is something about going to church. It does strengthen us. It does change us. It does correct us. It does inspire us. It does motivate us. It gives us the right perspective. It changes things, doesn't it? I understand that some of you may come into church today hanging on to your faith by your fingernails. You're really not as strong as the image that you portray. The truth of the matter is you're hanging on to your faith by your fingernails. You're here because somebody brought you. You're here just because it's Sunday. But but you came, and there's something about coming to church. Asaph went to church. I must confess to you that when I grew up uh, as a child, both my parents had a drug problem. Oh, yes, they drugged me to church <laughs> anytime the doors were open. And I stand before you as nearly a 43-year-old man, and I'm indebted to my parents for their drug problem. I thank God for my mom and dad. They drug me to church whether I wanted to go or not. As I think back on it, my dad never asked me, son, do you want to go to church today? Do you feel like going to church? Do you have a desire to go to church? No, my dad just walked through the house and said, come on, get in the car. We're going to church today. It never was up for debate, discussion, or doubt. My father, my mother said, I'm going to drag you to church today, kicking and screaming if I have to, because there's something about going to church that benefits you and benefits your family. One of the great problems with the American church today is not enough moms and dads have a drug problem where they drag their children to church whether they want to come or not. It's really not up for debate or discussion. Asaph went to church and it changed everything. I couldn't understand all this. It was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. On that day, Asaph realized that God rules and reigns with the end in mind. It may look as if the wicked are winning right now, it may appear as if the righteous are suffering exhaustively right now, but God rules and reigns with the end in mind. There's going to come a time when God will right the wrongs. There's going to come a time when he will appear as the righteous judge. There's coming a time when he will set up his earthly kingdom. There is coming a moment when God will show himself as the strong, mighty, matchless, sovereign savior of the universe. You and I, if we know how the novel ends... Can handle the twists and turns of the plots. You, you read the book, and if you know how it ends, then you can handle those moments when it feels like you want to pull your hair out of your head. Those twists and turns that you didn't see coming, you didn't expect, but there it is. And if you don't know how the story ends, it may leave you unhinged. But if you know how the novel ends, you can handle the twists and turns of the plot. And friend, we've read the back of the book, haven't we? We know that Christ wins. Jesus is victorious, and if we are in Christ, we're on the winning side. Regardless of what's happening right now, we know that God is victorious in Christ, and we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, so we are victorious. Jesus told a story in his earthly ministry that communicates this beautifully. The parables in Matthew chapter 13. The master told his servants to sow wheat in the fields. So they obeyed and they did. But unbeknownst to them in the secrecy of the cover of night, the enemy came in and planted weeds right beside the wheat. Nobody knew this for a little while, but eventually when the wheat uh, began to sprout, so did the life-sucking weeds. They grew side by side. And when the servant saw this, they returned to the master and said, Master, who did this? And the master said, it was the enemy who did this. And the servant said, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to go and pull up the weeds? And the master said, no, no, no. Let them grow side by side. Leave them. Because if you pull up the weeds prematurely, it may affect the productivity of the wheat. But when the harvest comes, I'll tell the harvesters to pull up the weeds first, bundle them and throw them into the fire. And then to gather my wheat and put them in the protective security of my barns. What was Jesus talking about? He wasn't talking about an agricultural insight in Palestine. He wasn't telling farmers how to harvest. He was talking about eschatological things. He was talking about the end of time. He was talking about the harvest. He was talking about how the wicked seem to be winning and they're living right beside the righteous ones and it seems that they are taking some of the life-giving sustenance from the wheat into the weeds and Jesus says, no, I'm going to allow them to grow side by side because if I uproot the wheat, the weeds prematurely, it will affect your productivity in life. But when the harvest comes, when Jesus returns, he will tell the angels, gather the elect from the four corners of the globe, put them in the safe confines of my barn, of my eschatological kingdom, and then I want you to bundle all of the weeds and throw them into the lake of fire. See, Jesus knows what he's doing. He rules with the end in mind. This is the aha moment that Asaph had. He came to this conclusion. All of this was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final destiny. It's no secret that I am a huge Kentucky basketball fan. I think I've shared this story before, but it bears sharing again. I watch nearly every basketball game, all 40 plus of those games every season. But for the last several years, uh, I have not watched a live basketball game, and I don't know how long, because of that beautiful invention of DVRs. And so I, I record every Kentucky basketball game, and then when I have a little bit of time, I'll watch them. And I've I've reduced it down to an art form. I can watch a college basketball game in an hour and fifteen minutes. Just fast forward through all that introduction junk and fast forward through the commercials and who cares about halftime analysis? You want to see the ball game. So it will take you about an hour and 15 minutes to watch a college basketball game. And even as I watch that game, there have been times when I've had a conversation with the television. There have been times when I've spoken to that McDonald's All-American who missed the jump shot. How in the world could you miss that jump shot? You've been hitting that jump shot since you were 12 years old. There are times I have even spoken to the referees. How in the world could you make that call? Clearly, it was not a charge. It was a block. And there are even times I'll even speak to coach. Coach, why in the world do you make that stupid substitution? You make like $5 million a year. I can make a better decision than that. There have been times when I have had a heated conversation with the television. Several years ago, I came to this conclusion. You know, it's really ridiculous for me to get so stressed out about a ball game. So even though I record all of them, there are times when even still I'll get a little anxious about the ball game. And this is what I'll do sometimes. If I find myself getting stressed, I'll just fast forward to the very end of the game. And if I see that Kentucky wins the game, then I'll rewind it (laughs) and I'll watch it. It's amazing when you watch a game from finish to start instead of watching it from start to finish because you know when that McDonald's All-American misses that shot if you already know how the game ends you don't get upset not everybody can hit every shot I mean don't be ridiculous and when the referee misses that call cut him some slack Everybody makes mistakes from time to time. We all know that it was not a charge. It was a block. We we understand that, but we know how the game ends. And when coach, oh, bless his heart, when he makes a silly substitution, you know, he probably is pretty stressed out right then. I I don't know. He's probably unnerved in that moment. And so I just cut him some slack. He's okay. He does all right. Why? Because we know how the game ends this is what asaph concludes all of this is oppressive to me until i enter the sanctuary of god and then i understood their final destiny i know how the game ends i've read the back of the book i know how the novel concludes So because I know how the novel concludes, I don't get stressed out with the twists and turns of the plot. Because I know how the game ends, it's okay if there's a missed shot, a bad call, or a silly substitution, because we know how it all ends. Now, you may be sitting there thinking to yourself, uh, that's a cute story, and that's a good little truth, but pastor, I've been coming to church all my life, and I'm still stressed out. Pastor, I've been coming to church all my life and I still doubt sometimes and I still question the truthfulness of God's word and I and I and I wonder if God is aware of all the things that are going on and I do wonder does God know and does God care? Pastor, if you're telling me all I got to do is come to church, I've been doing that all my life. Is that all you got? Well, my friend, let me add this. Not only does Asaph come to the house of God, but he goes to the God of the house. It's one thing just to come into the house of God. It's another thing to take your doubts to the God of the house, to take your doubts, your despair, your questions, your agony, to the one who spoke the world into existence, who told the ocean only comes so far, who taught the sun how to shine, the birds how to fly, and the fish how to swim. It's one thing just to come into the general area. It's another thing to take your doubts to the God of the house. If you begin looking at verses 23 and following, it gets rather personal. You have guided me. Your hand is upon me. Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire beside you. My heart, my flesh may fail, but God, you are my strength and my portion forever. Can you say that this morning? I mean, you may be struggling. You, you may be wondering how do I handle life when the facts of life and the facts of faith don't measure up? How do I handle when God doesn't act the way I want him to? Yes, come to the house of God, but also come to the God of the house. Can you say to God today, whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. My heart, my flesh, yes, it may fail, but you are my strength and my portion forever. Oh God, you have guided me and you have held my right hand and you're not going to stop. So I come to you as a desperate worshiper. I come to you as one who is a a sheep of your pasture. I come to you longing for you to still guide me and lead me and protect me. Oh God, I bring all of my doubts to you. I can take you to the place where the lunch took place 21 years ago. It was a table for two. It was on the back porch of my grandmother's house. My grandmother wanted to have lunch with me 21 years ago before I went to seminary, before I got married. I remember two things about that infamous lunch. The first one is this she made the best fried chicken I have ever eaten. I knew I was going to be a minister because I love the Baptist bird. And my grandmother could fry up that Baptist bird like nobody's business. And I remember, I think the two of us, I think we ate the whole chicken that day. I remember a second thing about that lunch. It's far more profound than fried chicken. I'll go ahead and tell you. In the course of the conversation, she said, Davin, I want you to look at me because I need to tell you something. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, God has his hand on you. I said, yes, ma'am. God has you by your right hand. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, now look at me. Don't you ever forget this. I said, okay. And so I locked eyes with my grandmother. And she looked at me and she said, don't ever let go. I said, yes, ma'am. That conversation was 21 years ago and I still remember it like it was yesterday. My grandmother has gone on to glory. One day I'll see her again but for the rest of my life I will not forget what she told me on that sweltering hot summer day on her back porch as we were choking down fried chicken. God has you By the right hand, don't let go. Friend, you may be in here today hanging on to your faith by your fingernails. I want to tell you what Asaph learned. I want to tell you what my grandmother reminded me. God has you by the hand. Don't ever let go. So verse 28, Asaph concludes, but as for me, It's good to be near God. This is the second time you've heard that phrase, but as for me, you heard it in verse two, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. And here in verse 28, but as for me, it is good to be near God. How can a person go from saying, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped too, but as for me, it's good to be near God. How does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. Asaph went to church. And when he went to church, he didn't just go to the house of God. He went to the God of the house. And it was very personal. It was very genuine. And he said, God, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour. I need thee so bless me now my savior I come unto thee what do you do when the facts of life and the facts of faith don't measure up this morning I want to challenge you to draw near to God and he will draw near to you you can be as close to God as you want to be The person most responsible for your spiritual walk with the Lord is the person seated between the individual on your right and on your left. It's you. You can be as close to God as you want to be. In those moments when spiritual experience and spiritual insight seems to collide, in those moments when the facts of life and the facts of faith don't measure up, in those moments of despair and doubt and depression, in those moments... Don't just go to the house of God, but go to the God of the house and draw near to him. And I promise you, he will draw near to you. But as for me, it's good to be near God. I don't know about you, but I could come to that same conclusion. When I am near God, I'm a more faithful follower of Christ. When I am near God... I'm a more loving husband. When I am near God, I'm a more compassionate father. When I am near God, I'm a more effective preacher. When I'm near God, I'm a more tender pastor. When I am near God, I'm more eager in evangelism. When I'm near God, I'm more obsessed with obedience. When I'm near God, I make him more of a priority. I can always tell if I'm near God or far from God. All I got to do is just evaluate my living I think that's true, not just of me, but also of you. And I can come to the same conclusion Asaph comes to, but as for me, it's good to be near God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. Will you please draw us close to your precious bleeding side? Will you please draw us close to the cross where thou hast died? Please draw us unto you. And help us to declare today that you are our strength and our portion forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.